Hey, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, if you're jumping in a little late, I'm J.D. Mangrum. I get to be the pastor of Christ Church, Charlestown. So glad you're here today on Valentine's Day. I am personally for any holiday that encourages me to eat a box full of chocolates. But you always have to be careful not to eat the ones that are filled with toothpaste or motor oil or cough medicine or whatever those things are. So hope that however you celebrate today, if you celebrate it, you are celebrating it with chocolate. It's one of God's gifts to us as human beings. For all the elementary schoolers in our church, let me say this, and everybody in our church who would, should feel ripped off by uh, Valentine's Day 2021, you should feel the most uh, like you're getting uh, ripped off, you, not having in-person learning uh, at school when it comes to Valentine's Day. I don't know if they still do Valentine's Day like they did when I was a kid. It's my kind of okay boomer moment for the week, right? Like I remember being a kid at uh, Russell Elementary School in Warner Robins, Georgia when it came around February 1st, your teacher, it didn't matter which teacher it was, every year it was the same, whether it was Mrs. Brown or Mr. Hounsen or Mrs. Richmond. Around the first of the month, the teachers would pass out to every kid in the class a roster of every kid in the class. Now, for kids like me, uh, this guaranteed a couple things. One, it guaranteed that you didn't get forgotten, which always meant a lot. And then two, it guaranteed that you didn't pass over girls who, in my mind, up until around fifth grade, still had cooties. So we would get this roster around February 1st. Then on the week of Valentine's, we would all get this, uh, like a paper lunch sack. Do you remember this? Maybe it was like this for you. The teacher would have written your name on it, and then you would have had an afternoon that week in class where you would have gotten red crayons, uh, purple crayons, and maybe pink crayons, and you would have had to have decorated up this bag. And then on Valentine's Day, you would come in, you would see everyone's bags stapled to the at the bottom of the bulletin board there in class. Now... My mom and I would have stayed up late the night before writing the names of all the kids on these little Valentine's cards and I would have come in on Valentine's morning and we'd have thrown them in all the bags and about 2.45, uh, we would stop what we were doing. We would all be given a, a little cupcake uh, doused in sugar, a tiny little cup of uh, red Kool-Aid and then just as we were leaving, we would be given our bag of, of cards and we'd left for the day. I'd get home and I'd begin to open all those envelopes. Sometimes they'd have a lollipop tape to them or they might have one of those small bags of the romantic antacids with little love notes on them. And, and when you get to the cards, there'd be uh, Bumblebee from the Transformers saying, uh, be my Valentine and have somebody's name written on it. And then maybe Luke Skywalker saying, on Valentine's, may the force be with you. And then there'd be one with a little My Little Pony saying, actually, who am I kidding? I didn't care about My Little Pony cards. And I certainly wasn't going to open and look at and dive into the card from a girl who might have been passing along cooties to me. In elementary school, you know, Valentine's was about seeing who thought you were cool or finding out someone noticed you when you didn't even think they saw you, as if the roster didn't guarantee that everyone was going to get seen and picked by everybody. Have you ever had a time like that where you got picked and it surprised you? Like you got picked for the kickball team or you got picked by someone and it kind of shocked you. And I don't just mean romance either. Like in the in the spectrum of love and relationship and life, romance, regardless of what our culture is going to tell us today and throughout the year, romance is just a very small sliver of what it means to love in this life. Have you ever been chosen or served or blessed or encouraged or seen or loved? You know, have you ever been picked and then caught off guard by it? 
Did your spirits lift? Did your heart kind of fill up when that happened? What is it in us that wants to be loved and noticed and chosen and made to feel special and even sacrificed for? As much as we want to act like we don't really care, we know we do. We were made to love and we were made to be loved. And so today I want to share the gospel with us, the gospel that God isn't just looking for us to love him and notice him and choose him and even sacrifice for him to make him feel special. Rather, the gospel is that while sin made us unattractive and worthy of God's rejection, he loved us and he still chose us and he still sacrificed for us. And King David understood that. Today we continue in the Lord is my shepherd, looking at verse 5 of Psalm 23. To this point, we've seen David declare that God was his shepherd, the Lord was his shepherd, which meant for him that he lacked nothing and he was content. We saw David declare his confidence in God's ongoing provision and his restoration and his comfort. We've seen all this through the lens, if you know of King David, who is a king but was once a shepherd and remembered taking his family's flocks across ancient Israel. Today we're going to hear a shepherd talk about getting to the high places and we're going to hear a king talk about his banquet hall. I'd love to read verses 1 through 5 to us. And I want to amend it from our normal, we usually use the ESV translation or the English Standard Version of the Bible. Today I want to use kind of a a hybrid of the ESV and then the, the translation of the ancient Hebrew as it was kind of originally written. It says this, beginning in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack for nothing. He's constantly making me lie down in green pastures. He's constantly leading me beside still clean waters. He's constantly restoring my soul, constantly leading me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they're constantly comforting me. You You are constantly preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil And my cup is in a state of perpetual overflow. Remember, David's now king of Israel. But once upon a time, he was the runt of his family, the baby uh, brother, the youngest of the several children, the several sons of Jesse. And he was therefore the keeper of his family flocks. By now, he's risen. By the time he writes Psalm 23, uh, he's risen to prominence and influence and power and wealth and all those things. And he's living in a royal residence. It's with this mixture of both royalty and recollection of his more humble days that he writes. And here we're going to see a bit of both of those parts of David's story. He said, you prepare a table before me. Now, Shepherd David would have pivoted from leading the sheep by green grasses and clean waters and on good paths and even through the valley of the shadow to now they're arriving at the table The table, you know, we call that the mesa or the highlands. Um, Other parts of the world call it table mountain. There's a a great one actually in Cape Town, South Africa that we want to put up here as a photo so you can see what one of these looks like. It's an elevated flat top piece of land. It's arrived at by kind of a strong climb with a rise in elevation on every side. On a table, the shepherd and the sheep were more protected from predators. On the table, the sheep found good grasses and breathtaking views. 
On the table, the waters were cleaner because the spring water at the table was more fresh. Leading flocks up to a table, you would, uh, if you were the shepherd, you'd kind of go ahead and you'd clear away any poisonous grasses. You'd open up the springs to make sure there was good water and you might even have to kill the predators. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, David continued. Shepherd David would have taken his sheep to the table at the end of summer. It's in summer that the flies and the worms would be the most threatening to the sheep in ancient Israel. They would get in the ears and the nose and the eyes and even sometimes bore their way into the brains of a sheep. And sheep could be made sick or crazy or even killed by those flies and worms if unprotected by the shepherd. The loving shepherd would cover his sheep in oil, pouring it on, pouring on olive oil lovingly and generously and rubbing it in. This oil was a repellent to insects and worms and brought ease to the heart of even the most agitated of sheep. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Philip Keller, Christ follower and, and former shepherd in his classic book called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, wrote about how the shepherd would carry a mixture of clean water and brandy, actually. And along the journey, a sheep might get sick. Through the valley, the sheep might get edgy and rattled. And even up on the table, the sheep might get cold and vulnerable. And it was this overflowing cup of this mixture of brandy and water that would meet all the needs of a, of a sick or restless or vulnerable sheep. It caused Keller to write this, the New Testament instructs us clearly to grasp the idea that the cup of our life is full and overflowing with good, with the life of Christ himself, and with the presence of his gracious spirit. And because of this, we should be joyous, grateful, and serene. This is the overcoming Christian life. It's the life in which a Christian can be content with whatever comes his or her way, even trouble. A cup overflows. Now, David, the former shepherd, surely remembered his former lifestyle. But this verse doesn't just sound like a sheep and shepherding, does it, right? Like it's talking about tables and cups and enemies and uh, anointing. These sound like human stuff just as much as shepherding stuff for us. Now, King David would have in invited people to his table. In fact, in 2 Samuel 9, holds part of the biography of King David, uh, we learn of his care for a man named Mephibosheth who was the grandson of a former king uh, and the descendant of David's now-deceased best friend, Jonathan. Mephibosheth was lame, he was forgotten, and he was a nobody. At one point when he meets David, he even refers to himself as a dead dog when he meets him. But David treated Mephibosheth just like royalty. He saved him a seat at his table, he uh, prepared the table, he loaded it up with food, uh, he treated him like a guest of honor. David's loyal subjects and, if, and his family would have seen Mephibosheth as, as an enemy, quite frankly. And, and at one point when the kingdom was transitioning from Saul to David, Mephibosheth was actually dropped and made lame in his feet. And so not only would he have been seen as an enemy, in a lot of ways in David's culture, he would have been seen as worthless. And yet here was David inviting him to be a guest at his table in the presence of his enemies. Going on just a little bit uh, more, I think about my grandmother, actually. At my grandmother's house, now there were plates and there was the china. And there were forks and spoons and knives and then there was the silver. And then there was the tablecloth 
and then there was the silk tablecloth. And there were very few non-holidays where we would break out the good stuff. Uh, but when the preacher came, or maybe one of my granddad's colleagues came over, you, you would see the nice stuff come out. And so when you came to the table and there was that silk tablecloth and there was those, the china and there was the, the silver, you knew something was going on in the feast, man. I can still smell and taste my grandmother's cooking from all those years ago when she would prepare the table for an honored guest. The Lord does the same. Why did Mephibosheth and what, what, did, what David did for Mephibosheth and my grandmother Harriet Sanders did for guests, the Lord does for you and for me. Uh, why am I a guest? Why are my enemies watching? Is it because of my goodness? Is it because of your attractiveness? Is it because of our worth or usefulness? No, not at all. It's because he's good and he's gracious and he is generous through no merit of our own, the Lord, our shepherd, subdues our enemies and prepares a table and invites us to dine. King David would also remember anointing. That's not just sheep business. When David's infant son died, he anointed his head as a sign to, of the end of mourning to add color to and life to his, his sort of his presence. As king, he would have a servant who would have anointed his guests to make them presentable when they came before him. You anointed yourself in ancient Israel, or you were anointed by slaves to say, life is good, life goes on, I'm doing great. In 1 Samuel 16, we read of Samuel, God's prophet, anointing David. The Lord didn't choose David's older, stronger brothers, but as Samuel passed by David, the Lord told the prophet Samuel, he said, this is the one, anoint him. And Samuel took out a flask of olive oil and he poured it on young David, signifying he would be the next king. And scripture tells us in that moment that the spirit of God rushed on David for all the rest of his days. David didn't anoint himself. A servant, a lowly person didn't anoint David. The Lord himself, the Holy Spirit, anointed David. The Lord does the same for us. We don't have to anoint ourselves, proving ourselves to God and everybody else. It's not how it works. We also don't get anointed by nobodies. The Lord anoints you and me. He chooses us, affirms us, washes over us, even comes and lives inside of us. That's the gospel. God doesn't ask us to clean up to come to him. He anoints us. He brings us to life in Christ and then covers us in grace that we can't earn. He literally anoints us like Samuel anointed a future king. Christ followers, I want to encourage you, those who've turned from sin and you've surrendered your lives to Christ, you are called in 1 Peter 2, a royal priesthood. I don't want to overdo this today, but if we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a child of the King. He anointed you in salvation by sending his Holy Spirit to wash over you and come and live in you. Some of you have felt like slaves and like nobodies for far too long when he has anointed your head and your heart with oil. You go through a cycle of defeat because you forget who you are and whose you are. And I want to tell you today, you're a royal priesthood anointed by the king of the universe. And finally, David understood the cup. Now, pre-pandemic, I love going to restaurants with really great servers there's a balance between when you're a server, I think, between coming too often and not coming often enough. In the too often category, I don't love those places where the server won't even let you like take a sip of your drink before they come and refill you. Have you ever been to one of those? Usually it's, it's somebody actually in training. 
Now, I would tip them well at the end, so I wasn't just messing with them, but literally every time they would fill my cup and take a step away, I'd try to drink a sip, see if I could get them to come over a little quicker. Uh, just love to mess with them. King David said the Lord, his shepherd, didn't just fill his cup with provision or blessings. He said his cup was in a state of perpetual overflow. God was constantly giving David more than he deserved or could even hold, and he's doing the same for us. Friends, we are blessed. That's what that means, right? If we woke up this morning, had four walls around us, a roof over our heads, if we had breath in our lungs and sight in our eyes and taste and smell, if we just had that, we had more than we deserve in Christ, honestly. Yet the Lord offers us more. And the best part is he offers us himself. He fills our cup to overflowing. And how's he do that? On the night Jesus was arrested and tried, he, he prayed and he said, Lord, if there's any way possible, could you please just let this cup pass from me? You see, at Jesus, at his crucifixion, drank the cup of God's wrath. At the cross, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to the last drop. All that's left is a second cup, the cup of blessing. Christ followers get to drink an overflowing cup of blessing because Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath at the cross. Jesus went to the cross and he died a death he didn't deserve to offer us relationship with God and salvation as we turn from self and we turn to God in faith and surrender our lives to his rule and authority. At the table, shepherd or dining with the king, we find we're loved, we're provided for, and our enemies are subdued. We're anointed, we're covered, we're honored by the king, we're put at ease by the shepherd, and we're given a cup full to overflowing. You are loved. You are loved. Advertising will tell you, especially today, that you need to be lovable and you need to be lovely. They'll even tell you all the things that you can do and buy and achieve and say to help you be more lovable. Culture and sort of a self-help sort of nonsense will tell you that you are awesome and you are perfect and you are flawless. They'll tell you that you are essentially divinity with skin on and anyone who doesn't see it is blind. Culture will affirm us to the point that we drink our own Kool-Aid and become blind to actually how desperate we are. Religion will tell you to get out there and start loving. You better love God and you better love people. And if you do so, then maybe God will love you. Religion says somehow your luck, your love is going to unlock God's love somehow, but it never tells us how much we have to love to do so. And it always leaves us feeling like we didn't do quite enough, doesn't it? The gospel says Jesus loves you. The gospel says you aren't lovely. We're in fact covered in sin and have rejected God outright. We aren't awesome. We're not perfect. We're not flawless. We've earned the right to be considered God's enemies. Yet Jesus leads us to the table. He covers us in his love and he passes his cup of blessing while drinking our cup of wrath that we deserve. Despite there being no inherent goodness in us, like a kid opening those little cards, longing to feel loved. In the gospel, we find we're loved, we're noticed, we're chosen, we're made to feel special, and we are even sacrificed for. We love because he first loved us. We love not because it unlocks God's love, but we love because God's love unlocks in us a freedom that allows us to love others. 
We can't help but love others when we see how much we've been loved by God. Every February 15th, I'll tell you the truth, I walked into class a bit of a different young man. After receiving suckers and heart-shaped antacids and notes from classmates, some I didn't even know existed, some who had cooties, so I tried to stay away from. I had my head held high on the 15th, my shoulders back. I felt like someone. A little more important uh, each year than I did uh, the day before on the 14th. I was free to be a friend and I was free to be kind. Friends, Christ has loved you today and he loves, uh, he loves you actively today. You can breathe deep. Like take a moment right now to just go. You can breathe deep and breathe in God's love today. Lift your head up and love freely. In this world, our greatest witness um, is not our obedience. Our greatest witness is not our singing. It's not our comments. It's not our shares. It's not our giving. It's not our going. It's not our bold moves or our serving. Our greatest witness to this world is our love. When we love and freely and humbly declare, I love because he first loved me, a watching community and a world, watching world must reckon with our Lord, our shepherd. But that's not the main point or the main to do today. The gospel is the main point today. The Lord leads us to his table. He anoints us with himself and he gives us a cup full to overflowing. Receive his love today. Live loved today. If you want to do something else today, do this. Be loved. Declare, maybe even in the chat today, I am loved by Jesus. I am loved by Jesus. Live loved. And pre-Christian, let me encourage you to receive his love today. Be saved. Be born again. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, I thank you for everyone listening on this 14th day of February. I know it's a day where our culture kind of celebrates one tiny sliver of love, but God, the the wide, broad spectrum of of love, Lord, is just so full of your love for us. Uh, Father, that when we were loveless and, um, and unlovable, you came to us in love and you sent your son, Jesus. And for those, even right now, who had turned from themselves, turned from their sin uh, and surrendered their lives, their hearts, their everything to you, God, that the gospel is that you extend your love to us. You come and you begin to live in us. You anoint us in your love and you fill our cups. So God, I pray for anybody watching today, but specifically for some men and women in our church who've been on the fence about this. God, I pray maybe they would turn and trust Christ today. For the rest of us, Lord, or for all of us, I pray we would live loved. I pray that we would live love because we've lived loved. And, uh, and Jesus, we thank you that when uh, we were nothing, you came to us. You are the good shepherd and you are the great lover. And we are thankful to be recipients of your love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.